Grab your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. While you're turning there. In our house growing up, and I don't know how it was for you, but in our house growing up, the center of our home was the table. It's where all the meaningful conversations seem to happen. It's where the moments of connection happen. See, I was one of, uh, you know, a member of six people in our family, one of four kids. And so by the time we hit high school, we were going in a million different directions. Anyone else know what that's like, going in a million different directions? And so by the time the day would come to an end, we'd all kind of come screeching back to the dinner table. And this is where we would reconnect and talk about the day. We'd share the stories, ask the questions. How was your day? What did you learn? What did you go through? In fact, this is a picture of some of us. These are some of my cousins. This is your preacher when he used to have a lot more hair from a few years ago. This is the dinner table. Go to the next slide as well. And here's my mom. Here's my sibs. Uh, my older sister, no, she was not on drugs, but um, <laughs> I hope she's not watching this. But this is our dinner table. This is where so many of those moments took place. It was just a special place to connect. And it was at the table. My mom would make the meal. And my dad, he would begin to tell stories. I don't know if you have someone in your family who's a storyteller. My dad was a storyteller. And so we'd hear the stories of what it was like for him growing up in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, home of the atomic bomb. And how he always thought it was so absurd that they were taught to duck and cover. He's like, that's not going to save anything. We heard the story growing up of the time that he accidentally sawed off his sister's finger. Yeah, that's a whole story. Don't worry, she got it put back on. It's good. A little lopsided, but it's good. We heard the story about how mom and dad met and how he almost blew it. He, he waited so long to ask her to marry him that mom went back up to Pennsylvania. And so he follows her to Pennsylvania. He could only find a job at this used car dealership. He hated every minute of it. He found out sometime later that, oh no, I think that this dealership has ties with the mob. And so he was always on his best behavior whenever he was at work. But we heard these stories and it was around the table that we learned who we were and whose we were and what mattered. And I think it's so interesting that when Jesus wanted you and me and wanted us to know who we were and whose we were, he gave us two beautiful gifts. He gave us the cross and he gave us the table. And I think for some of us, we just need to be reminded of that recentering place as some of his closest friends needed in John chapter 21. And so we're going to read a story. We're going to pick it up beginning in the middle of the story. But this is the text we're going to camp out in for the next few weeks. And I just want us to take some moments and look at this text from John chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. It says this, When they, these are some of the followers of Jesus, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged out the net onto the shore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Come and have breakfast, Jesus said. Let's pray together. 
Father, as we open this word, I pray that we will feast on the goodness of this text and see what it means to sit with you for a few moments. Open our eyes to see what we need to see. Open our ears to hear what we need to hear. Holy Spirit, go before us in the text and make a way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know, have you ever been in a what now moment? Now, now some of you say, what's a what now moment? Let me tell you, here's a few examples of a what now moment. A what now moment happens the day after the wedding day. You've spent all this time preparing for the big day. You have the flowers, you have the dress, you haven't eaten one carb for six months, so you'll look good in that dress. The flowers are ready. The preacher says, do you, do you? They both say, I do, and now you're done. It's the day after the wedding, and many of us prepare for the wedding, but we don't prepare for the day after, and so we go, what now? Or... You know the what now moment. For some of you, it's the day after you've just given birth to your firstborn child. All the prep work went into getting the room ready, painting the walls, building the crib. You picked out the perfect name. It's a name no one else in the family has and no one knows, so no one gives you their opinion about the name. Anyone else have some PTSD from that growing? Yeah. And now you've gone, you've given birth to this beautiful little child, and finally the day comes, the nurse hands you your baby and says, go home. And you say, what now? Like, don't you know that you are wildly irresponsible to give me a child? Don't you know I'm going to do something terrible and just not take care of this thing very well? It's a what now moments. And there's so many of them, for some it's going to be the day after the funeral, and you just go, what now? But the what now moments are the dominant moments of life. See, what now moments sit between the really big moments. The what now moment is the day after Easter. It's the day after Christmas. It's the day after the wedding. It's the day after the firstborn. It's the day after the new job. It's the day after retirement. It's the day after some big event. And I'm afraid that for many of us, we are prepared for the big moments and we expect God to move in the big moments and we forget all the what now moments. And so whether you're a follower of Jesus or you are kicking the tires of faith, I want you to understand for the next four weeks, we are going to look at what to do in the what now. And this applies to all of us because most of life is made up of what now moments. See, the followers of Jesus, the disciples are in a what now moment. They're going, what do we do? See, just a few days earlier, they were following a peasant preacher from Nazareth, but now he's been killed and raised from the dead and they now serve and follow a resurrected rabbi. And they're still trying to figure out what now? We know they're trying to figure it out because they don't know what to do. In fact, because they don't know what to do, Peter and some of his close friends say, hey, let's just go back, go fishing. They go back, and isn't it true that in what now moments, isn't it true that we often go back to what is comfortable in the what now moments? We go back to what is familiar, what is just what we always did. See, before Jesus came on the scene, Peter thinks, I was a fisherman, now Jesus is back, and I still don't know what to do, so I'm going back to what's comfortable. I mean, have you ever been in a place where because of the complexity of life, because of the confusion of what you're in, the what now moment, you just want some normalcy? So you go back to what is familiar. And by the way, familiar doesn't mean bad, but sometimes it doesn't mean best. And so we go back to those things. And in this moment, they go back to fishing, but they're having absolutely no luck. See, the first eight verses tell us they go back to fishing, but it's not one of the best nights. And they've been fishing all night and things aren't going well. And so 
They've been casting and not finding anything, casting. And they're not rod and reel casting. I mean, this is big weighted nets where they throw the net out and then they pull it back in. They throw it out and pull it back in all night long, nothing. And so they do what every fisherman does when they can't get a bite. They go to a different spot on the lake. They go to their secret special spot. You know that spot on the lake? It's a spot where the fish always bite. No one else knows where it is and nothing. So then they go to the spot where all the other fishing boats are, where all the fishermen seem to be getting something. They go out there and still nothing. And you can almost imagine the frustration. Here they are in the early morning hours and still nothing. And so then finally, to add insult to injury, there is some fishing expert out on the shore who says, hey, fellas, how's it going? You catching anything? And you can imagine their thoughts in that moment. Finally, this little fishing expert yells out, hey, why don't you try casting your net just on the other side of the boat? After all, fish don't swim back and forth, so this will be an awesome answer, right? Now, by the way, we don't have record of what Peter says at that suggestion, and that's probably a good thing. But they throw it in. They're not expecting anything. They're not paying attention when all of a sudden the net goes taunt and starting being pulled. And it's not just a little tug. It starts to yank so much that the boat starts to tip. They begin to take on water. So they begin to call to the other boats, help, help. Other boats start to come. And then we are told that John, the apostle, the one writing this account, says to Peter, that guy on the shore can be only one person. That must be Jesus. And at this, Peter gets himself ready and he jumps into the water and he quickly swims towards shore. And when he comes up out of the water, he is there face to face with Jesus. Now, we don't know what they said or if they said anything. After all, the last time Jesus and Peter had a one-on-one face-to-face moment was the night Jesus was on trial for his life and his eyes and Peter's eyes lock just after Peter has denied knowing Jesus three times. What do you say in a moment like that? And so maybe they didn't say anything. Maybe they just sort of nodded to each other. And at this point now, the other disciples come up onto the shore. And what's interesting is we're told that Jesus has already made a little fire. He already has fish. He already has bread. Where did he get the fish? Where did he get the bread? We don't know. But he already has it ready for them. And he gives them this beautiful invitation. He says, why don't you guys come sit with me? Let's just have breakfast together. See, there's something powerful about the table. Where no matter what's happened, we get to be reminded of who we are. We reconnect with our roots and our values and all the things that are frustrating and just causing the weight in this moment around the table, we get to find out what is most important and they begin to have a meal. Now, nothing tells us, there's no text or part in here that says how long it took before the awkward silence was broken. Maybe he was in a moment. Maybe Jesus broke the silence. Don't you think he did? He was a joker anyway. All the times he talked about, you know, hey, if your friend has a speck in their eye, don't try to pluck it out if you got a big old plank in yours. So Jesus being the joker that I think he must have been, can you imagine what he did to break the silence? Maybe he looked at them and says, you know, fellas, for professional fishermen, I sure have to help you a lot getting your fish, don't I? And one of them snickers, another one laughs. And then finally one of them goes, yeah, you remember it wasn't just on the sea, but on land where you multiplied fish and loaves, Jesus. And then maybe another one points to a spot just down the shore and says, and it was over there just three years ago, Jesus, where you first called us. Do you remember this? 
And one by one, it becomes this conversation. They begin to share stories. They begin to laugh. And they talk about the moment that Peter put his foot in his mouth by saying this. And the moment Peter did that, and finally Peter says, hey, knock it off, okay? I'm trying. And they reconnect around the table. Now, over the next three weeks, we're going to look at what is said around this meal because it is more powerful than I think most of us can imagine. But all I want us to do for the next just few minutes this morning is what would it look like to meet Jesus regularly around the table? See, I'm afraid that for so many of us, we are waiting for those special moments, the big days, the Easter's, the Sundays, maybe even just Sunday itself, maybe not Christmas or Easter. But we're waiting for a Sunday to meet with Jesus and eat with Jesus. You're waiting for someone else to feed you. Is it any wonder the American church is so spiritually malnourished? Because we're waiting for a special day to be with Jesus instead of just saying today is a good day to be with Jesus. Did you know that in our nation, we are overweight and malnourished? It's true. It's a wild thought to consider that in our nation we have more calories being consumed and yet people are unhealthy and they are sicker now. Yes, we compensate with medication and other things, but the fact is we are overweight and malnourished. It is possible to fill ourselves up on all the junk food of this world and be malnourished because we don't have time with the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself. So I just want us to spend a few minutes together looking at what it looks like to spend time with Jesus around the table because Jesus' invitation to them to come sit, have a meal with him is Jesus' invitation, hear me now, to all of his disciples. Are you a disciple, by the way? If you have given your life to Jesus, trusting him in baptism, then friend, you are a disciple, a follower, a student of Jesus. I don't know if anyone has ever told you that, but you're a disciple, And just as the first disciples ate with Jesus, we get to eat with him as well. So let me walk you through this. There are four things we see from this text, four parts of what it means to join Jesus around the table. If you have a piece of paper, I invite you to write this down because many of us are going to leave here hungry because I'm not going to be able to fill you up. By the way, can the preacher ever fill you up, church? The answer is no. Can the preacher ever fill you up, church? Because the preacher is not the one who feeds you, it's the word of God. And so I want to give this to you so you can be fed daily. Are you ready? Number one, if you want to meet with Jesus and eat with Jesus, no one, pick your time. Pick your time. When will you meet with Jesus? See, Jesus doesn't simply want to meet you on Sunday. He wants to meet you on Monday. So when are you going to meet Jesus? What time? The text tells us that this event, this encounter happened early in the morning. Quick question, show of hands, where are all my morning people at? Anyone in here? Oh yeah, hold your hand up, hold on. This is your moment to shine, okay? Now, where are all my night owls? And by the way, if you don't know what you are, you're a night owl. That's just the way it is, right? You know, you get up at the crack of noon and it's still too early. It's not that you have to meet Jesus early in the morning. It's just that you pick a time and then commit to the time. One of my son's best friends goes to this church. He's a great young man. Um, His daddy was telling me not too long ago that his son has a timer on his own watch or whatever for 12 noon every day. You say, why 12 noon? Because that's lunchtime. 
And this boy does not want anyone to forget at 12 noon that it is lunch time. You say, well, has there ever been a day that they forgot to feed him lunch? The answer is no, but he's like, why risk it? You know, we just want to make sure because this is an important meal. I wonder what would it be like if we took as seriously our meal with Jesus every day where we said, well, why risk it? Because he is the bread of life. He is the one who sustains my soul, who gives refreshment in the desert. Why would I any less take time and make time to prioritize time with the one who gives me life? Now, before we had kids, I thought I was a night owl. I really did. I thought, okay, 9, 10, 11 o'clock, that's one of my most creative. And then we had kids, Stephen and Emma came along and they're like, no, dad, you're not a night owl. And I'm like, you're right. After nine o'clock, my brain is mush. And so our family, we, we try to get to bed at a decent hour. And Lindsay and I, we try to get up pretty early, usually around five o'clock. And the first thing we do is we have our time with Jesus. That's the first thing. It's not because mornings are more sacred. It's because I can't control what happens through the rest of my day, but I can control the first minutes of my day. And I want them to be with Jesus. So pick a time. This is obvious, but I want us to do this. So the first question I would ask, and if you don't have a time, pick a time. Go ahead and write it down. Put it on your phone. Put it on your piece of paper right now. What time will you meet with Jesus? If you don't have a time, pick a time and then say, tomorrow I will meet with Jesus. Now, the second thing you got to answer is simply this question. Well, not only time, but place. What place will I meet Jesus? After all, if you're going to get together with a friend for lunch, you got to know where you're going to meet. And as the song says, what a friend we have in Jesus. If you're meeting with him, where are you going to meet with him? Tell him where you're going to meet. Don't tell me, tell him. And so for each of us, we've got a different place in the text. Where did they meet, church? On the beach. What a great place. But here's what's interesting. Notice they were not planning to meet Jesus, but Jesus was ready to meet with them. This tells me that Jesus is ready to meet with you Whenever and wherever, pick a place. Again, when it comes to picking a place, it can happen anywhere. See, we're creatures of habit. And it's important that we create these rituals, these things that we do so that your body knows when you come to this place, it is time to be with the Lord. Quick question. How many of you are familiar with uh, Pavlov's dogs? Anyone? All right. Very good. Uh, For those of you who are not familiar Um, Ivan Pavlov was a Russian neuroscientist and psychologist, and he did this very famous experiment with some of his dogs. What he did is he would get his dogs when they're hungry and he would feed them. But when he would feed them, he'd ring a little bell. So he'd feed them, ring a bell, feed them, ring a bell, feed them, ring a bell. And then he got to a point that he would just ring a bell. And do you know what happened? The dogs, because they associated eating with the bell, when they simply heard the ringing of the bell, they began to salivate. They began to get hungry because they simply heard the bell. They knew what it meant. See, for me, the bell is the tea kettle in the morning or the coffee pot. When I hear one or the other, it's like, oh, it's Jesus time. I get to have a meal with my Savior. And so in the morning, we'll pick our place. Lindsay and I, she has a spot upstairs. I have a spot downstairs. And we go to our places and we visit with Jesus. Pick a place. Where can you just be with you and the Lord? I'm not talking about in your car where you're liable to bless the Lord and then curse those around you. And maybe it's not even a place that that the time is going to be short. But where can you just have time with you and the Lord? Pick a time. Pick a place. And then number three, pick. This is so important. Pick a passage. Pick Pick a meal. Like when you go to the restaurant. What do you choose to eat? In fact, let's just do this. Take, 
10 seconds. I want you to turn to someone around you, very important. Tell them if you could go to anywhere for lunch after church and what meal you would have there, what would it be? 10 seconds, real fast. Any place and any meal, go. All right, three, two, one. Someone shouted out, where would you go? Papacitos. Yes. Does anyone know what Papacitos is, by the way? There you go. Fantastic. Okay, someone else. Loopies. Yes. Someone else. Logan's. What was this? Wendy's. Yes. By the way, a friend of mine went to Wendy's some years ago, told me that you can get a no pat or no bun meat stack at Wendy's. It's just meat, cheese, meat, cheese, meat, cheese, meat, cheese. And this friend of mine gets meat sweats when he does it. <laughs> pick a passage. Just like when you go to a restaurant, pick a passage. What is the meal you're going to feast on with Jesus that when you go to the text, this is what I'm going to chew on. I'm going to be with the Lord and he's going to show me what he wants me to see. See, Jesus had the food for them. They simply had to come ready. You say, Josh, I don't know where to begin. Okay, I've said this before. If you don't know where to start, I would encourage you to start in the Gospel of John. We've spent months in it now. You're familiar. Go back through. Let our rabbi teach you personally. But, But find a place in the text that you can just chew on the goodness of God. In fact, that word meditate, you know, you've heard that phrase, meditate on the word of God. You know what that word really means? Best picture I've ever heard. How many of you have ever seen an old country dog chewing on a bone? Any of you ever seen like some old mangy dog got a bone and he said, that is what meditating on the scripture is. It's chewing on it and letting the flavor of God's word sit on the tongue of your soul. Now, I know some of you are saying, okay, smart Alec, what about you, preacher? What are you reading? Fair enough. I've been going through the minor prophets, and I've just finished up going through this little itty-bitty book called Joel. It's one that we don't typically go to. We may actually go into the minor prophets this fall. We'll see. But in Joel, here's what I learned, something that stood out to me maybe for the first time. Joel talks about this thing that happens where locusts, this, this swarm of locusts come, and they eat up everything. And it's devastation on a level we just can't imagine. But here's the thing that I learned about locusts. A locust, although not terribly large, eats its own weight in greenery every day. You say, all right, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. One of them is not a big deal. But if you take all the locusts, some guy did this. He figured out what the weight of an average locust swarm is. If you weigh them all together, that is 50,000 pounds in one day. Your garden's gone. You know, that little raised thing you have in your backyard, it's gone and so is the neighborhood one day. And here's what it caused me to think as I was reflecting on this, chewing on this. It's not one little bad decision that breaks someone's life, destroys life. It's all the little bad decisions together that lead to destruction. But then I turn to the next page and then it says that the Lord, when we repent and when we turn to him, he has pity on us and he gives us back Life, He gives back what the locusts stole, which then tells me that one great Savior is far bigger than all of the small bad decisions of my life. See, that's what we find when we come to the text. So pick a time, pick a place, pick a passage, something to chew on with the Lord. And then number four, did you notice it? Pick your people. See, Peter, he's with Jesus, but he's not alone with Jesus, is he? Verse 1 tells us that Peter went fishing with some of his crew, with Nathaniel, with James, with John, 
um, with a couple of the disciples, but he didn't go with the entire remaining 11 disciples. He didn't. It was just a few of them. Do you know what this tells me? There are some people you're going to be closer to than others in the church, and that's okay. But who are you doing life with? Who do you reach out to? See, the reason some, these disciples, got to see Jesus there on the beach was because they were doing life together the night before. Matthew's not there. Bartholomew's not there. Philip's not there. They missed out because they weren't doing life with some of the followers of Jesus. Here would be my question. Not, are you personally in the word, but with whom are you sharing the word? You're being fed, and now you're saying, you've got to hear this. Let me show you. See, did you know there's a difference between Christians who hang out together and a Christian community? There's a radical difference. See, you can be Christians who are going to a movie. You can be Christians who are going to a ball game. You can be Christians who are going to all sorts of things. But that's not biblical community. Biblical community are those who love Jesus and bring Jesus into wherever you're going. So you're at the movie, but then you bring up the name of Jesus. You're at the ball field, but you talk about the name of Jesus. You are on this trip and Jesus is there with you. Who are your people? See, it's impossible for a church of our size to know everyone as well with each other. You need a community. If you're saying, what now? The answer is you need a community. And, and, and we'll help you. If you don't have a community, you can find Evan Aldridge or you go to the Next Steps table. You tell him, I want to be in a community and we will help you get in one. Because no matter where we are in this moment, we call life. No matter what, the good or the bad. It is always a good time to have a meal with Jesus.